Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. On this week's episode, it's really a pleasure and a privilege to have Lord Matt Ridley join the program. Matt Ridley is the author of some of my favorite books, some of the most important books I've ever read, the first of which being The Rational Optimist, which really paints a picture of a world that continually gets better in spite of the fact that all of us are hardwired to be pessimistic, to fear the lion in the dark, so to speak. And this book explodes that bias we all have and paints a picture of a world of continual improvement. And so it's for that reason that I was anxious to have Matt come on in this period of pandemic crisis with COVID-19 and the coronavirus because he has not been a um, overly optimistic uh, guy when it comes to this this crisis. He has sounded the alarm like so many others. And when Matt Ridley says we've got a problem, we've got a problem. So I was anxious to talk to Matt to, to get his take on what's happening in this moment we're in, how we should think about it, and how those of us that cling to being rational optimists can understand a world in crisis. And so I'm excited to share this conversation with you. And I also encourage all of you listeners to watch out for Matt's new book that's coming out in May, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. I am sure that this is going to be another important contribution to the way all of us think about progress and the future of civilization. And without further ado, this is Matt Ridley. So Matt, you've played a very important role in my own personal, uh, you know, both mental, like an emotional reaction to what's happening with this coronavirus epidemic, because you are my rational optimist spirit animal. <laughs> I, I, uh, your book, The Rational Optimist, is one of the most important books I've ever read. It frames the way I think about the world. I recommend it to everyone I meet who is in the catastrophic mindset and thinks everything's getting worse. And so when I saw the, the first article you had written saying, um, this thing might be the wolf uh, instead of uh, the, yep. instead of you know the boy who cried wolf. This might be the actual wolf. That gave me real pause. It really changed what I was at that moment thinking was maybe being overblown by politicians. As yeah, as as a friend of mine said, um, if you're scared, then I'm really scared. <laughs> because <laughs> I had a reputation of debunking pretty well every scare and it stood me in good stead doing that over the last 20 years really saying no you're exaggerating that problem whether it's you know something to do with pollution or the environment or something to do with um, uh, all sorts of other problems and um, uh, so yeah I, I am I was as soon as I got my head around what was happening with this virus once it spread out of China um, uh, and how it managed to combine being very contagious with being quite lethal, at least to some groups of the populations. It's not overall very lethal, but it is pretty dangerous for elderly people. Um, 
I began to see that uh, we did need to take this very seriously indeed. Uh, and it's proved to be much tougher to get on top of it than I think any of us had hoped even a few weeks ago. So there's there's no shortage of of crisis talk at any given time, right? There's always there's always Correct. people who believe we're in that the sky is falling, that inequality is exploding, that the climate's going to be kill us all in twelve years. There's all these sort of bombastic claims that we hear, and your your way of thinking, your 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 data driven. Um, way of approaching these issues and also just I think the um, the philosophy that underpins your approach to progress um, that that we that everything evolves and that we make this incremental evolutionary progress towards a better world each and every day that has um that's always been my 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 lodestar and so what what I now struggle with and and in what I hope our conversation can really be about is how do I, or how do those of us out there who aren't catastrophic thinkers or have trained ourselves to try to be allergic to that? Cause it, it, how do we negotiate the information landscape that we're in now? Because I don't yeah. know how to separate the, every crisis is opportunity. Um, you know, political yeah. hype, media hype, if it bleeds, it leads. There's so many reasons why the world of information that comes at us is always crisis oriented, but now maybe it's true. So which part's true and how do we know which part to believe? Right. right. Well, how do we tell when it, when there is a wolf, given that people are crying wolf pretty well every day on a uh, pretty promiscuous basis and, you know, episodes like the Y2K uh, millennium problem uh, of 20 years ago, when we were told that all the computers in the world would crash and society would come to an end at if 1999, at the end of the year, if we didn't do something very expensive to all our computers, um, uh, are quite interesting little sort of dry runs for this, because obviously that didn't happen. So a lot of us went around saying, see, you were exaggerating the problem, to which people replied, no, no, it was only because we dealt with it that it didn't happen. Right. It was only because we spent a lot of money on me, on consultants, <laughs> um, <laughs> that it didn't happen. Um, uh, and I don't think that's true at all, because there were lots of industries, lots of countries that did very little, and they were fine too. So I think that's a very clear example of a wolf that was called and it turned out not to be a wolf um ones like climate change you can keep postponing the crisis and say yeah okay you know the weather's not that much worse yet it's a little bit warmer it may, might be a little bit wetter or maybe seeing a slight change in storminess although there's evidence for that's pretty poor but you wait wait for 30 years and you'll see what happens well i've been waiting for 30 years i've covered that story for over 30 years now i first wrote about it in the late 1980s when i was science editor of the economist and i was fairly worried at that time and uh, i'm pretty sure that we are still uh, exaggerating that problem that it isn't nearly as bad as we think in a, in a few decades time our grandchildren might experience a slightly warmer world which might be a little bit wetter and maybe a tiny bit stormier and slightly higher sea levels but um i really do think that uh, uh it's not going to be much worse than that so i don't understand people who say this is undoubtedly the greatest crisis humanity is facing um uh and we've spent so much emotional 
and financial uh, energy on uh, talking up that scare that we've left very little oxygen in the room for things that really are scary. And this virus is scary. It's not the end of the world. It's not going to wipe out the human species. It's not very lethal. It's got a 1% or less uh, mortality rate and much lower in people who are healthy. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it can do a lot of damage and it can do a lot of economic damage as well as a lot of uh, actual damage to people's lives. Um, what's the difference? You know, why do I think this one is worth worrying about? Uh, um, and the answer is because. Uh, because of that exponential curve that it's capable of doing. One virus leads to two viruses because, on the whole, people are passing it on to about two people in an unlocked down society, as far as we can make out. Um, and then two leads to four, leads to eight, leads to 16. Before you know where you are, you are dealing with gigantic numbers. That's the the beauty, I almost said, but uh, the horror is perhaps the better word, um, for an ap epidemic, a pandemic, um, and why they really do have to be taken very seriously. And in the past, they were the cause of immense problems in human society. The Black Death killed, you know, 40% of the population of Western Europe, probably. Um, uh, smallpox wiped out most of the children in most generations for hundreds of years until we worked out how to vaccinate against it and so on. Um, uh, so we know these are capable of being lethal, um, of being dangerous at least. Uh, we know we've greatly improved our chances of surviving pandemics, and we've got rid of most infectious disease as a cause of as a cause of mortality. Um, you know, from whooping cough to cholera, you know they're no longer a big threat uh, in human society. But we know that we still spread respiratory viruses very freely. We call them the common cold, and they're mostly pretty harmless. But if one of those were to turn harmless, then it's a real problem. Um, and that's sort of where, what brings me to the, to the thinking that this one does need to be worried about. Whether we're right to shut down in the, the entire economy and do real harm that way just to stop it is, an, is still an open question. What's, the, um, what's your sense of the difference between different government responses? Because and I know this is, I think this is in a sense unanswerable, but it seems like right now the, the Swedes, um, Sweden has maybe the most um, permissive policy at the national level of, of the Western countries. There, I might be missing others, but, mm -hmm. um, and so far, so hard to keep track, but it seems like they're not necessarily experiencing or we don't know them to be experiencing more deaths, which is the only one that I trust is the deaths because yeah. they talk about the the cases, but they're not testing everybody. So and and since this doesn't um, present symptoms necessarily uh, quickly, maybe not even at all for some people. Uh, talking about the cases and going to that Johns Hopkins website and looking at how many cases that seems like a, a piece of like a like slightly misdirective information. No, I think that's exactly right. And that's particularly true in my country because the UK has been very slow to ramp up the testing. We were doing quite a lot of testing compared with countries at the start. We're still doing about the same number, whereas other countries like 
the USA, slow off the blocks, have now vastly increased their testing. So they're doing 20 times as much testing as they were, and they're finding a lot more cases. Whereas here, we're not even testing people who have clearly got it. People who are staying at home, we've got all the symptoms. Um, uh, I know several people who are in that position, and I've spoken to them on the phone, and they've not been uh, had an opportunity to be tested. So we know that we're testing a very small minority. You're right that the deaths number is the one to watch. That's the one that's telling you what's happening in different countries. And it's a pretty scary trajectory. We're all following Italy at this stage, um, or not all, but mostly. With the big exception of the Asian countries, particularly Korea, Taiwan, uh, and Japan to some extent, which uh, and of course China itself, which have managed to produce much slower increases and in some cases pretty well damped it down altogether. And it seems like the difference is uh, testing and contact tracing. It seems like at the moment that's the only weapon we have against this virus is to find out who's got it and who's been in touch with people who've got it. Um, uh, because, as you say, the scary thing about this virus is that it is passed on by asymptomatic people or people who have not yet developed symptoms. On average, four days into an infection, you're giving it to someone else, whereas with SARS, it was eight days. Uh, with flu, it tends to be towards the end of the time you've got it. So this this early transmissibility is a, is a real problem. Now, in Co- South Korea, you can be contacted via an app to say, look, it turns out four or five days ago, you came into contact with someone who has now developed the virus, so you should self-isolate. That's where we've all got to get to as a technique to shut it down. Whether the Swedes can do that without locking down um, all work and shopping and everything else the way the rest of us have done will be very interesting to see. Uh, And I suspect that they are banking on being a more... uh, um, obedient society a more distant society than the rest of us that on the whole they they they're more sensible or something <laughs> uh, and they, they it may be right I'm, I'm not trying to 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 undo that um we also need badly to find out how much it's spreading within the healthcare system i think that's one of italy's problems is that within the hospital system it got established pretty early on so that people who were who were coming into hospital because they were old and frail were being given an extra disease um, uh, and one that was possibly lethal. Um, so there's a lot we don't know. Um, but, you know, I am a rational optimist. We will find ways of testing, ways of diagnosing, ways of contact tracing, but also ways of curing, you know, ways of treating people, and eventually ways of preventing it through vaccination. Um, uh, it's come as quite a shock to me and others to find out just how slow we still are at developing vaccines. Uh, in my new book, How Innovation Works, which is coming out in May, um, unlucky timing, but there we are. Uh, <laughs> in my new book, I discuss the case of the two rather splendid women who invented the whooping cough vaccine in Michigan in, in the 1930s, um, Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldering, uh, because they went from nothing to a workable vaccine distributed throughout the country in about four years. Uh, And that was an incredibly impressive achievement. On the whole, we struggled to achieve that sort of rate of development of a vaccine, vaccine even today. And when you think how much more knowledge we have about the DNA sequence, the protein structure in a vaccine, in a virus, um, 
we really ought to have got better at this. And it turns out that that in our obsession with climate change, we've neglected to prepare for much more dangerous problems like this. You know, I um, it's interesting that you frame it that way. Is it is that a fair framing? And and what I mean by that is, I think it's unquestionably the case that um, climate change has been treated in many quarters as the single greatest threat humanity faces. Um, no, no question about it. But all the while, hundreds of billions of dollars are still spent across the country, across this country and around the world on healthcare and on, um, you know, basic research by both gov- private sector and public sector. So is there, is that trade-off of, of consciousness truly a, I mean, at some level, it almost, it almost of course must be because priorities find their way into decision-making in a lot of domains, but um, we probably are spending more now per capita on on research than than that's, was done yeah. a hundred years ago, right? Is that or, or is that not true? Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, that's absolutely true. And and no, you're you're right to to pick me up on that. But there are there have to be consequences of going around saying this is by far the most important uh, thing that we should be worried about. Uh, you know, that's bound to. Um, make it harder to talk about other other problems and in this case there was a very specific problem staring us in the face i'm not claiming prescience here i didn't spot this so i you know i i'm, I'm not saying that i was wise about this there was a very specific problem which was that yes we have a huge research industry devoted to researching uh diseases of lifestyle diseases of of uh, the western world and to some extent infectious diseases and how to cure them um and a gigantic pharmaceutical industry working on these problems, but very little work going into new vaccines. Um, And the reason for that was because it's very hard to make money out of a vaccine. It's needed in a hurry, in a panic, and then suddenly it's not needed anymore uh, because you've defeated the problem or the problem's gone away. In the case of the Ebola epidemic of five years ago, Um, By the time the vaccine was ready for testing, the epidemic was over. So whoever would invested in trying to make that made no money out of it. Um, uh, And and now, you know, some people did spot this. Uh, The Gates Foundation teamed up with the Wellcome Trust, an equally big charity based in in London, uh, and the Norwegian government and the Indian government and said, let's set up something called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. Let's set up something that can fund the development of vaccines in particular, but also other measures to make sure we're ready for an epidemic when one comes along. Because SARS has been a warning and Ebola has been a warning and swine flu and bird flu were worries. And sure, they didn't turn out to be as bad as we feared, but the next one might. Now, they only got going in 2017 and uh, they have made good advances and they are being very useful in the present epidemic. But if they'd got going 10 years earlier then I think we would be in a much better position to do something about that now Um, because somebody's got to find philanthropic money to pay for vaccines because commercial, they're not profitable things to develop. I'm not especially well read on, on, at least in the United States, 
the structure of the industry, I, I, when it comes to vaccines, I, I do believe that there may be a secondary issue beyond just the, the business model problem, which is, I think when they are needed, there's often pretty stringent price controls and, and things that make those moments even more difficult as far as government policy kind of wiping out the vaccine industry on top of it being a hard business to be in. Yes, I think that I think that's not wrong. Uh, I mean, I think um, uh, there there are uh, you know you're told how much you can charge. Then there are regulations about uh, testing it for safety that are obviously very uh, um, strict, uh, and uh, and then there's intellectual property that gets in the way. I mean, one of the things we're we're rapidly trying to do at the moment is get people to pool or waive their patents on technology so that we can. Uh, say, look, let's not worry about that. Let's not worry about what this belongs to. At the end of the end, when this is all over, we'll look back and work out whether somebody's patent was infringed and he deserves something. Well, that tells me that patents and copyright, uh, intellectual property in general, uh, is not what it's held up to be, that is to say, a help for innovation. It's on the whole a hindrance. And there's a very strong literature on this. Uh, oh, people yes. like Alex Barak have been writing about it, you know, pointing out that that actually patent thickets, patent patent trolls, uh, and you know the the ridiculous idea that that one person out of this huge web of people who put together an innovation deserves to sort of scoop the pool and get a huge fortune out of it, um, just because he's somehow been lucky enough to get his patent application into the patent office first. Um, it, it's it's a crazy way of running the system. Likewise, copyright. I mean. Under pressure from people like the Disney Corporation, um, we've extended the rights of copyright holders, made them much easier to claim, uh, extended them to 70 years after the death of the author. That means when I die, hopefully not soon, 70 years after that, my grandchildren are still going to be raking in not very much money. <laughs> well, why should they? Let them get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I came across a book uh, against intellectual monopoly. Uh, I believe it was Michelle Boldrin was the author. Yes, that's Harper. yes, she's she's great on this. Yeah, and um, uh, and it basically made the case that just as an empirical he record of history, um, in, uh, patents are 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 not helpful outside of one particular domain. Uh, and 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 before I say what that domain was, the the great example is you know we already talked about Bill Gates. Well, Bill Gates himself said, had there been copyright or patent protection on software on computer code at the in the early seventies during that era of the homebrew computer club and this and and Steve Jobs and 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 Wozniak in their garage and Gates trying to get DOS off the ground and writing Basic and all these that that the whole industry would have been stillborn. It would have been impossible. And then, Correct. and then if you go back in time, what you find is innovators are, ne are, are basically never the ones to get the protection of intellectual property uh, uh, protection. It's always existing players looking to keep competitors out. And he said, that's right. It, it, well, it's not always, but it, it but it is overwhelmingly, often, it is often a barrier to entry and where, where, where the inventor does uh, get the patent, he then spends the rest of his life in a miserable battle to defend these patents. So people like Samuel Morse, um, the Wright brothers, 
um, uh, Marconi, uh, you know, they, they spent half their life in court defending the patents they'd claimed against rival claimants, some of whom had a good point that they had actually invented uh, part of the technology or something just as important. Um, so, so these guys ruined their lives when they should have just got on and made the next device that was better than the last one, you know, the first mover advantage. And um, you're right that one of the reasons the software industry has been such a spectacular place for innovation in the last um, 20, 30 years uh, is because on the whole, it's moving so fast that there's not much point in sitting back and trying to rake in money from a patent. You're better off um, just moving on to the next uh, technology and getting a first mover advantage with a little bit of tacit knowledge that's up your sleeve. The, um, the one area that has been pointed to I think by a lot of this literature as being perhaps an exception to the rule is pharmaceuticals because right. the production, once you know that some molecular compound has this great effect, this uh, reproducing that compound is basically free. It's so there's all this upfront cost, a lot of which is complying with um, the government regulations to get the drug passed, especially here in the U S where the FDA is, if there's one thing that we're all seeing now is how 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 many people die because we have the FDA as opposed to how many people are protected by it. How many? Yeah, know, it's a very are, difficult balance to get right. That of course, but yeah, absolutely right. The opportunity cost of not bringing drugs to market, and it costs a billion dollars to bring a drug drug to market at least these days. And if you were to spend a billion dollars to go through three phases of clinical trials and prove that your drug worked, and then you all to wake up the next day and find that some some generics manufacturer could make it for and sell it for pennies, then then something's wrong. You know that clearly. So so you're absolutely right. This has to be an exception. But even in that industry, when you look at what the monopoly profits from a drug are spent on, they don't tend to get spent on more research. They tend to get spent on defending the patent <laughs> and erecting barriers to entry. So the, 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 the maybe different ways of doing patents, variable length patents, um, uh, and, and in, you know, in, in the current case, the, you know, there's ideas you could buy out patents. You know, you could say, look, uh, we we need to get this into manufacture quickly. So um, uh, we'll the government will come along and buy it out, and that means that the, the, the drug will suddenly become very cheap and available to everybody, and everybody can make it. Um, uh, and you come, so you know there are ways in which we could make the intellectual property system more flexible, even in the pharmaceutical industry. So um, one of the things that this is going to bring to the foreground and, and already has in some quarters is calls for changes in, um, in, in provision of healthcare, certainly here in the United States where we, we, for all of the role that government plays in healthcare, which is enormous, um, it is still not a single payer system or a nationally administered system. We still have these, little pockets of faux private management of healthcare in the United States. And I say faux mm -hmm. because when the government tells you what you can do, who, who can do it, how many of those people can do it, what they can charge, and then spend two thirds of the money saying it's a free market or it's a private healthcare system is kind of a joke. Yeah, I agree. But, yeah. But we, uh, we, def we definitely are, are going to see and are already seeing calls for nationalization of 
even more of the system. You're in the UK. You have the National Health Service. Uh, do you have a, a, a perspective on how people who want to who don't have an axe to grind but are looking at this and trying to understand? Do they have a point? Is this why we need government to run healthcare? Uh, you know, what's your take on that? Having you know grown up in a nationalized system, but also obviously well, very familiar with the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, in both the UK and the US, health is very political. It's a big part of the political argument. And a lot of people are very unhappy with the way it, it's done. And in the UK, it takes the form of saying, why isn't the government spending more on this? It's a we have this treasured national health service that provides that everybody gets exactly the same treatment. And yet you can't get an appointment with your doctor because people use doctor's appointments for all sorts of trivial things like bits of advice on things and so on. Because it's free at the point of delivery, it is on the, it is abused to some extent and it's underfunded because it's entirely dependent on the taxpayer. So on the whole, that means that, that, rich people are not contributing uh, proportionately more, which is a pity. In between those two extremes, the American system and the UK system, um, there is, for example, the German system, where, uh, yes, it is basically free because your uh, contribution to it is deducted from your pay in the same way that income tax is. Um, but that contribution is not given to a government-run monopoly to provide you with health care. It is then used to pay insurance premiums uh, with huge market power on behalf of the taxpayer so as to get a good deal, uh, but with a thoroughly decentralized and competitive system to provide the results, uh, the health care. And on the whole, Germans don't bother about it they're, they're quite happy with their health system there's no huge political fuss about it it's quite well funded it's not particularly expensive um, and we're now seeing the results in the coronavirus epidemic which is that the that germany is doing a huge amount of testing has got a very low mortality rate has a large number of intensive care beds is performing really well uh, in this epidemic why is that well, I've just been looking into that in the last 24 hours, particularly on the question of testing. How are they able to ramp up testing so much better in Germany than in the UK? Uh, and it turns out that uh, there is no single public health laboratory as there is in the UK, which in the UK has clung on to a monopoly on all the testing, has insisted that all the testing either goes through it or is reconfirmed by it, uh, and as a result has run out of capacity. Uh, in Germany, there's no such thing. Uh, private firms, uh, charities, universities, anyone can bid to do uh, uh, PCR testing for COVID-19. Uh, and there are checks by regulators to make sure that they're getting good results from them. But uh, um, the, it, it's not a monopolistic, not invented here attitude from inside a centralized system. Now, America had exactly the same bureaucratic resistance at the start of the epidemic, the CDC insisting that all the testing must be done by it, that only its tests were any good. Turns out they weren't very good, uh, etc. And around the middle of March, America said, forget this, this isn't working. Any company or lab that can do this can do it as long as we have a way of checking that you're doing it well. And as a result, 
has expanded its testing capacity 20-fold in the last couple of weeks, which is an incredible performance. So it does feel to me like it's a huge mistake. To It's, it's a great idea that, that uh, everybody gets health care at the same cost, that it isn't something where the, the own, only the rich can afford uh, cancer treatment. You know, we must find a way of achieving that. Um, but the idea that the only way to do that is to have a great big Soviet-like centralized monopoly that actually provides the healthcare uh, is a mistake. Um, uh, it, the, you should acquire healthcare from uh, lots of competing providers and get them to compete to provide it at good quality and low price. Uh, but you should make sure that everybody gets access to it. And and I think a lot of countries have cracked that, and they don't include Britain, and they don't include America for two different reasons. The One of the features that I've noticed in um, American governance, and I'm tempted as a classical liberal to o- apply this to the government as a fundamental concept or as an institution, but I think it does apply in varying degrees, is um, our government at almost all levels seems to operate fairly indistinguishably from a mob racketeering uh, machine. In the, <laughs> and I'm being bombastic here on purpose because, uh, you know, and I come from a family of doctors. My father's a, a, a surgeon. My both of his parents were doctors, which means my grandmother was a really uniquely woman doctor for her generation in Philadelphia. I've got doctors everywhere I turn. If I go to a family event, there's doctors everywhere because with, <laughs> as an Italian immigrant, you're either, you're, you know, there's like genetic desire to either be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> right. Right. You came exactly. over, you worked on docs, uh, docs as in D O C K Right. And you want to be a doc. <laughs> That's um, nice. So, so, uh, but what I, what I observe is at every level, there is this desire to spend, and then there is structures to restrict how many suppliers there are. There's licenses and quotas to prevent more doctors. So you medical schools have quotas for how many doctors they can accept every year. The, uh, in every state, there's, um, or almost every state, there are various rules that restrict how many hospitals can be uh, created. And the people that sit on these boards that decide whether there is a need for more hospital beds, as if there's ever such thing as we don't need any more hospital beds um, or more MRIs or, or tests. Uh, it always tends to be the people who currently own hospitals that are playing a role in deciding this. And I think this is this dividing, it's an ideological dividing line that happens in the United States where well-intended people can look at that and one will say, see, this is, corporate takeover of our government this is why we need more gov- this is why we need the government to just get rid of all these people and take it all over because then we won't have these private profiteers trying to restrict supply um and i think they say that with all good intentions and a and, and a belief that it's private profit that's driving that um and then you have people like me who say it's the monopoly of power of government that even makes this thing possible because everyone wants a monopoly. Politicians yep. want a monopoly. Corporations and their management would love to have a monopoly. It makes life easier. Uh, 
the thing that prevents monopoly is not total monopoly, but it's competition and free. Exactly. Well, the, 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 the idea that you, you, you fight monopolistic tendencies of corporations by handing everything over to the ultimate monopoly, which is one government with, which not only has a monopoly on, uh, uh, deciding who can operate in a particular space, but has a monopoly on violence, you know, which is the sort of, that's the sort of definition of government is that it's the thing with a monopoly on violence. Um, uh, uh, that 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 that's always struck me as as, as pretty crazy, um, and yes, the 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 pattern is that uh, uh, industries, corporations, interest groups will always pressure government to give them more barriers to entry uh, against, so that they don't have to worry so much about competition, and so that they can increase the prices they're charging or increase the the amount of business that that, that they can command. And they'll do this in all sorts of ways. And occupational licensing, as you say, is is a big way in which this happens. Um, uh, it becomes necessary to get a government-granted license to operate in a certain field. In in my new book, How Innovation Works, I, I mention uh, that uh, in Florida, to uh, practice as an interior designer, you have to go through a pretty long course. And, <laughs> uh, you know, if you come from Alabama and you qualified in Alabama, that's no good. You have to read qualify in florida i mean god forbid that we have alabama standards of of interior design popping up in florida that would be a catastrophe wouldn't it um you know they've got absurd these occupational licenses and of course it's not absurd to say that a surgeon or a doctor must be qualified but it is absurd to say that let's limit the number because then they can charge more um uh, and that does happen all the time. Brink Lindsay and, and Steve Tellers have a very good book on this called The Captured Economy about all the ways in which government has become a place for would-be monopolists to argue their case, when in fact government should be the very opposite. It should be arguing on behalf of the consumer, not the producer, the whole time. I sit in the House of Lords, which is one of the houses of, of our legislature, and I'm gobsmacked by how often my colleagues are talking up the interests of one producer group or another, one interest group or another. I mean, it might be an environmental organization, you know, that, that wants to achieve something. But in the end, it's a trying to it's, it's it's asking for more business. It's saying, you know, we need a more more regulation so that we can apply for the grant to to enforce these regulations or whatever it might be. Um, but the number of times people get up and stand and say, well, hang on, what about the consumer here? is much fewer actually and people aren't even aware they're doing it you know they think they they think that the that their job as a legislator is to get up and and represent the interests of some producer with a concentrated interest and often a concentrated problem you know there often is an unfairness that has has developed that needs to be redressed um but the diffuse cost to the consumer of all these regulations and barriers to entry and tariffs and everything else um is uh, is forgotten about. Uh, and that seems to me the big, big problem that was identified by um, uh, people like Mankar Olson and others as being, you know, that, that government is essentially used as a mechanism to reinforce special interests. And we have to find a way of, of combating that. And we do find ways. It's not impossible, but it is uh, it, it is the, the, the problem that fewest people realize is happening um as we wrap up there's sort of two futures that 
concern me and I imagine concern you and you've written about you've written about them. You know, one is obviously the path of this disease and how we might think about when it will come under control. Um, the other is the path of globalization and the path of, 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 the, of the engines of progress that many people misunderstand, but that are, I think if you spend any time studying them are unequivocally the key. And that is what, what is sometimes derisively called neoliberalism. Uh, I, I think of myself as a neoliberal, but is the idea that, you know what makes the world a better place free people being able to move about this planet and coordinate, cooperate, and compete with each other um, so long as they don't hurt each other. And that that basic right. premise um, is the engine of opportunity. It's the engine of uplift for the, for the poor people around the world and for everyone. And I think uh, that is going to be threatened. It's going to come out of this with two black eyes probably because the free movement of people is going to be blamed for the spread of the virus even though no one really appreciates quite what they're saying when they say that it's like are you, do you mean we should shut down international travel forever <laughs> right. you know it's going to be right. you know we're going to we're going to have claims that we need to close up our borders look europe had to close up all their open borders it's like yes but right. even with totally closed borders you'll still have international travel so mm -hmm. viruses will get there, even if you can't become a citizen. The virus doesn't care if you're a citizen or not. Um, how are you to come back to optimism? You know, mm -hmm. what are the causes for optimism in this time of extreme assault on those of us that have worked so hard to be rational yeah. optimists? Yeah, it's 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 really tough, and there's a battle royal to fight as we come out of this to win the cause for freedom as the engine of human prosperity going forward. Uh, I mean, I wrote my book, uh, the, my forthcoming book comes out in May about innovation. Obviously, finished it in September before this disease even existed in human beings. Uh, so it's not about that, but there are, there's quite a lot in it that, that is of relevance. And I end the book saying, we live in an age of not having enough innovation. We think we live in an age of incessant innovation, but actually, if you look around us, apart from in the digital area, we're, we're pretty sluggish. We haven't got the turnover of firms, of entrepreneurs, of new ideas that, that we had even 20, 30 years ago. We're experiencing an innovation famine, and innovation is what drives prosperity upwards. Um, there's no doubt about that. And what drives innovation is freedom, freedom to exchange ideas, freedom to meet other people and recombine your ideas with them. That is the basic underlying premise of, of, of my book. So how do we get back on track and make sure we do enough innovation um, to keep the show on the road and keep prosperity moving forward? Um, and as we come out of this pandemic, uh, as you say, some people will say, right, well, that's it for globalization. It was a mistake. We need to erect barriers. Other people will come out and say, you know, I now really appreciate how valuable it is to be able to buy anything from anywhere in the world, go anywhere I want, speak to anybody I want to. Because for the last six weeks or three months or whatever it's going to be, I've been cooped up in one house or one flat. Um, 
unable to visit even my relatives, unable to go to a party, uh, unable to order stuff from the other side of the world, uh, unable to plan a holiday. Um, and I don't like it. And I realized that that was a really precious thing. And whatever it takes to get that show back on the road, I want to do it. Now, I'm in that latter camp, as you can probably tell. <laughs> um, and uh, I would like that to be our reaction as we come out of this. And so what, what, so what we need to do is say, yes, there is one respect in which we need to be really much more careful about globalization, and that is the spread of diseases around the world. By the way, not just human diseases, but animal, animal and plant diseases too. That biosecurity is the one big exception to free trade that I'm prepared to accept. Uh, if you see what I mean, um, uh, but uh, you know, let it, let's make sure that we have in place pandemic preparedness to prevent this ever happening again, so that we can then reconstitute a free trading, free exchanging, free speaking um, uh, uh, economy uh, that enables us to grab the benefits of innovation wherever we are in the world. Because why should it be that if I, sitting here in northern England, want to get hold of something, that I can only get it from five miles away? Um, it, you know, bad luck if nobody's invented a computer in my county. <laughs> um, that isn't the way the world works. We want to be able to get ideas from wherever they crop up, whether it's China or California uh, or anywhere in between. Um, uh, and uh, that way we can put the collective brain of the whole of humanity onto solving our problems. Uh, and, you know, we're going to solve this virus problem by networking the brains of people all over the world. We're not going to say oh, that we, we, we won't use that vaccine because it was invented in Germany, not America, or vice versa. Of course not. So let's take that approach to every other problem we've got. So I hope, I wish you well, I, and I, I hope you stay safe and healthy. And I will end this conversation on an on a piece of optimistic information that I've one I've shared with everyone I speak to and that is um, I have a family member who's over 65 with um, with respiratory problems COPD he went into the hospital with a fever um, this was a couple weeks ago he was tested for COVID-19 for the coronavirus that he got his chest x-ray everything looked clear the hospital sent him home uh, he never ended up with much more than a fever and a little bit of achiness. He's feeling better. And a week later, he tested positive. So we won't all be killed by this god-awful thing, although too many of us will. Yes. But even those of us who are right smack in its target, most will survive it. Seems to be... Absolutely. And there's another thing to cling on to in these dark days. And that is that unlike many viruses, this one seems to be almost completely harmless to children. Um, not completely, of course, there's always a risk and, and children with underlying health in, uh, things, but uh, health problems. But um, when you compare that with even the flu, which tends to kill the very young and the very old, um, or uh, the 1918 flu in particular was more dangerous for young people than old people, uh, or smallpox or plague or anything else, this one does at least seem to spare children. Now, that's not much comfort for 80-year-olds, 
but it is a bit because they they much as they don't want to die they also don't want their grandchildren to die and uh, i think you know that we are going to defeat this there's no question about it it's not going to bring humanity to an end um we will get out of it we will get the show back on the road um but uh let's do so in a way that um and make sure it doesn't happen again matt it's been a pleasure to to speak with you at this time i i really can't think of anyone i would rather talk to in this moment than you the rational optimist um i appreciate well, thank you very much john it's been great talking to you too and you've put into words some of my thoughts quite better than i could do so i'm i'm most grateful i'm certain that that is not true <laughs> having read your books <laughs> but i appreciate the compliment nonetheless thanks for listening to the emergent order podcast if you haven't already be sure to subscribe on itunes spotify or your favorite podcasting app if you're interested in being a guest shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.